Well, I'd like to welcome you again, in case you haven't figured out. Uh, I am Reverend Brian McGreevy. I'm privileged to be part of the clergy staff here at St. Philip's, and especially privileged today to get to share a little bit of the Lord's work in my life uh, with all of you. So, uh, so we can get ready for that. Let us pray. O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So what I want to talk about today, I want to give a disclaimer at the beginning. And the disclaimer is that a lot of times when you see a clergyman get up and talk, you think, oh, what he's going to say is if you're really obedient to God, you'll enter the ministry. And uh, that is not what I am here to talk about. In fact, I'm not even going to talk about my call to the ministry because that's a whole nother long story. But what I do want to talk about is what does it mean to radically trust God? What does it mean to trust God in your career? What does it mean to trust God with your family? What does it mean to try to walk in faith, particularly in times when you don't understand what in the world is going on and what the Lord is up to in your life? So I just want to give you a little bit of background. Uh, when I was growing up, I grew up here in Charleston, uh, was very blessed to have two wonderful parents. My mother is still with us, uh, both of them godly people deep in their faith, but from very different traditions. Uh, my dad grew up Catholic, went to Catholic prep school, Catholic college, and was planning to become a Catholic monk until he met my mother when he was in the army, and that was the end of that. Uh, and my mother grew up uh, in the uh, Episcopal Church and sometimes in the Methodist Church when there was no Episcopal Church where they were living. So I grew up in a family that went to church every Sunday, and I went to Porter Gown, and we had chapel. And all of that seemed nice to me, but it didn't really particularly mean anything to me. The only times I remember having any kind of real spiritual experience were the times when I was at Camp St. Christopher when I was a child, and there was a real sense to me that there was something there. There was something real, that there was some kind of presence, but I didn't really understand it. And by the time I was a senior in high school, although I was still on the school vestry, I was pretty much a functional atheist. And when I was a senior in high school, um, I was a year ahead, so at the start of my senior year, I was 16 years old. I was trying to figure out where I was going to go to college. Um, I had a strong idea that I wanted to be a corporate lawyer and that I would be able to travel on an expense account to really nice places, uh, and that was sort of my idea. But I also thought I might like to be a concert pianist on the side. So those are uh, mutually exclusive tracks. Uh, but senior year, went through the college advising process, decided that Brown University was where I wanted to go to school, and all of that was good. I was on track for that, and then Accepted Students Weekend came, and it was, I can't even remember, March or April, but in Providence, it was about 20 degrees and snowing. So if you're from Charleston, that's not very appealing. So I made a last-minute decision not to go to Brown and went to Duke. So I went to Duke, and Duke was largely not a great experience for me. Uh, my roommate was a drug dealer. Uh, I could tell all kinds of stories that I will skip. 
about that. But the other problem is I thought, well, you know, let's try this piano thing. And so I uh, was a piano performance major my freshman year. And unfortunately, my piano teacher here was Canon Cobb, who was a brilliant pianist and a really kind, wonderful man. And my professor at Duke was a Russian who barely spoke English. And when my hand got out of the right position, he would beat my wrist with a silver rod. So this made me think that this was perhaps not the right path. And then the other thing I realized, which anyone who knows me knows this, I didn't know it at the time, I am an extreme extrovert. And spending six hours a day in a little underground room by myself, God have mercy on the first person I saw when I came out of there because I would talk their ear off. But the great gift that happened to me right before I went to Duke, I was 17 years old, uh, August of after I graduated from Porter, I went to an event called Happening in Mount Pleasant. And it was the first time even though I'd been in church every Sunday of my life, it was the first time I had ever heard a presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and understood that you had to make a decision whether to follow him or not. So I did that, but I didn't quite know what that meant, and I started trying to read the Bible in Genesis, and I'm a pretty quick reader, and I made it through Genesis and Exodus, but I have to confess to you, when I got to Leviticus, I thought, you know what? This is not for me. I'm not sure this whole thing is real. But when I got to Duke, I had the great good fortune to run into InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, got deeply involved with that, uh, was discipled by some really godly people, uh, was introduced to C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, which had a huge impact on my life by helping me see sort of the intellectual background for belief in Jesus Christ. So that was a beautiful thing, um, but I realized that the piano thing was not what I wanted to do. At that point, I also was very interested in historic preservation and historic preservation law, and I transferred to Furman, which oddly, back in the 70s, had one of the top two or three preservation programs for undergrads in the country. So I went there, um, got involved with uh, InterVarsity again, and met a woman named Paulette Moore, who became my mentor, who had a great influence on my life um, until she died um, last year. But Paulette was uh, somebody who pushed you out of your comfort zone. And without my agreeing to it, she signed me up for something called the Urbana Missions Convention. Well, I didn't know what that was. And so I found myself on a bus going to Illinois during Christmas holidays and ended up in this convention hall with 17,000 college students who were Christians. And at that conference were John Stott, Elizabeth Elliott, J.I. Packer, Billy Graham. It was like the all-star team of evangelical Christianity. And it had a huge impact on me, particularly a session that was called Your Training or You, all about whether does God want just your training or does he really want your heart and your radical obedience. So fast forward, uh, graduated from Furman, went to Emory to law school, um, really uh, kind of by accident, uh, not a very thoughtful process, but thought that I was going into the law, got a great education at Emory, but the best thing about Emory was once again, InterVarsity was there, 
And uh, in, in university, I met this really cute girl named Jane Whitney. Uh, and we ended up, Emory had a large university chapter, about 200 folks. And we ended up being on exec together, which is a little five-person uh, leadership group. And we became fast friends and prayer partners and then started dating. And to make a long story short, she is my wife, which has been one of the great blessings of my life. So while I was at Emory, I was uh, interviewing with a lot of law firms, and uh, but knew I had a job. I'd been offered a job at the Georgia Trust for Historic Preservation. Uh, but after I had turned down my interviews from King and Spalding and Powell Frazier and Alston and Miller and Gaines and all these other places, um, I got a call from the Georgia Trust in May, right before I was graduating from law school, saying we have some good news and bad news. And the good news is we had still left you to come work for us. The bad news is the legislature cut the funding for your position. So at that point, um, I had to start scrambling a little bit. And I was uh, recruited to interview with this company called Loma that I'd never heard of, a big trade association management consulting firm in the financial services industry. Uh, fortunately, I was able to uh, be offered a job there, and I started working there. And it was a fascinating place to work. It was about 200 people, almost all of whom had doctorates, uh, working to improve executive education, um, management excellence, all that sort of stuff in the life insurance and financial services industry. And the Lord really blessed me during this time with great career success um, that I didn't really seek, but somehow I just kept getting promoted and within about five years uh, found myself as one of the officers of the company. So we had an executive officer group of five folks and uh, when you went into the executive suite, it was the CEO, the COO, and me, and our executive assistants. And I was in my early 30s, and I thought I was really hot stuff. So um, in this career, part of what I was tapped to do was to take the company international. It's a membership association. You could join Loma uh, if you were a financial services company and access a lot of research and uh, products and training and consulting. And we had had members around the world since the 1920s, but in the 80s, it was the global era, so I developed the strategic plan for us to go global. The board really liked the plan. We negotiated, I was general counsel by this time, 13 joint ventures in 13 countries, and uh, that went very well. And after those were negotiated, the board came back to me and said, since you know all these people, why don't you become CEO of our international operations? So I did that, and uh, that was a great job. It was very lucrative. So I'm in my 30s. I have a nice white-columned house in Buckhead. I have a red BMW in the driveway, a pool in the backyard. And Whit McGreevy has been born, and his sister Amy, and Jane and I are doing great. But then things started changing. I'm being paid lots and lots of money, a big six-figure salary, and I'm traveling all the time. Part of the deal was that financial services and insurance and pensions, particularly in other countries, are heavily involved with the government because the government wants those long-term investors. So I was working with a lot of ambassadors, I was working with government ministers, and working with CEOs of these huge companies. One company I worked with a lot with their CEO was AXA Group, which some of y'all will remember because 
Uh, they bought out Equitable, which Dick Genrette was the head of. Um, AXA's assets under management right now, I think, are around $1.5 trillion. So huge, huge companies. And as I was working, one of the problems was that I was gone all the time. And I was trying very hard to keep up my spiritual disciplines, having my quiet time, trying to go to church when I could, trying to be part of my small group, but I was just gone all the time. And I was making all of this money, and I felt, honestly, very torn because I was enjoying what I was doing, but it seemed like I was trapped by it. And there were various moments of truth with my family and my children um, that were just very difficult. And then finally, one of the business trips that I was on, I was in Japan, and whenever I would go, it was, you would get to go in very nice style because I'd be entertaining officials and all that. So I always had a driver in a really nice hotel suite. And I was in Japan, and I just had a fancy breakfast meeting for the 10 uh, most successful CEOs of financial services companies in Japan. And one of them had invited me to come visit with him afterwards. And this guy was chairman of something called Daiichi, which you probably never heard of. But Daiichi has assets of $350 billion. And I was on uh, the floor with him, and he was showing me around their headquarters. And all of a sudden, we walked around the corner, and the building got really dingy. And there was this old beat-up desk and an old leather chair. And then he explained to me that this was Douglas MacArthur's office that Douglas MacArthur had had his office in this building in World War II. And that is a real diplomatic conundrum. What do you say to your Japanese host when he's showing you the office of the occupying army? So anyway, I came home from that business trip. Jane picked me up at the airport, and I was exhausted. And uh, as we were riding home, something very peculiar happened to me. I had been praying um, about what to do uh, with this conundrum of this job and how do you balance that and spiritual life and I'm sure many of you have been in that position. How do you balance all these things? And as we were riding home, I actually had a vision. This makes me very uncomfortable because I'm a very rational kind of person. I don't like things like that that seem sort of supernatural. But the vision was, um, really almost something you could see, the gist of which was like puzzle pieces flying around, and the gist of it was that we were to move to Charleston and run a bed and breakfast. And I was like, what? If you're going to have a vision from God, it should be to be a missionary in Africa or something like that. So I thought God had gotten his wires crossed or the Japanese food had done something to my brain. Um, but I had never had an experience like it before, and it was... Um, just remarkable. And I didn't say anything to Jane because I didn't want her to drive off the road, but I just thought, this is so odd. And so I prayed and prayed that God would take it away because I didn't want to run a bed and breakfast. I had never wanted to run a bed and breakfast. I had no experience with running a bed and breakfast. All my experience of hotels was staying in them. So I just didn't quite know what to do with that. And as I was praying about it, all of a sudden, the Lord brought to remembrance 
something that had happened three months prior to that. And we had been in Charleston on vacation out at Sullivan's Island at the beach. And when we were on vacation, we would always come in to St. Philip's to go to church. And so we had come into church, and it was a particularly wonderful and moving service with really great music. And I still remember uh, we were walking up to the communion rail at the altar, and the song being sung um, was a Keith Green song um, that it was just a beautiful song. And I was going up, and sometimes, you know, you just feel the Holy Spirit with you when you're in a worship service. And so as we knelt down, I was feeling this deep presence of the Holy Spirit as I was taking the sacrament and this sense of joy. And right at that moment, Wit, who was about six at the time, started crying pretty loudly. So I decided, okay, no more spiritual moment. I'm going to have to take my child out of the church. I was not really very happy about that, that I was having this spiritual moment that was interrupted. So I took him out, and I said, what's the matter? Are you sick? You know, what is the matter? And he said, nothing's the matter. I'm just really happy, but I think God is telling us we're supposed to go to this church. And what spiritual and bright though he is, was not want to say things like that. So I very logically explained to him, we live five hours away. We can't go to this church. But I just sort of filed it away as something that was very odd. So fast forward back to praying about this bed and breakfast thing and prayed about it, prayed about it, and it was like literally like a burden on my shoulders. And I was still going to work and trying to do all the things I was supposed to do and traveling and all that, but I could not shake this. So finally, I told Jane I needed to tell her something. And uh, I told her, fully expecting that she would say, you're crazy, forget that, maybe you need a therapist. Uh, but what she said is, that is crazy. I've never wanted to do that, but that is so out of the box. That might be the Lord. We need to pray about this. So we both started praying about it, and then, and I could go on and on about this, but the short version is that Every Bible study, every church service, every women's thing, every men's thing that we went to for the next four weeks, the passage was Genesis 12 of Abraham being called out of the land of Haran to go and follow the Lord to an unknown country. One time I might have written off, two times I might have explained away. But when it got to be about the sixth or seventh time, I thought, maybe God is trying to tell me something. So at that point, we shared this idea with our small groups, and both Jane's small group and my guy's small group and our couple's small group said, you know, we could really see y'all doing that. And I was just like, because um, this was not what I had ever wanted to do. But it was interesting, as I thought about it, that we did, for a lot of that time period, have people living with us in Atlanta for various reasons. Um, my dear friend, Foley Beach, um, whom I met while I was in law school at Emory, um, he and his wife and their son lived with us for a couple of months when they were between houses uh, while Foley was a youth minister. And um, the hospitality part, I began thinking, well, maybe there is something to this. So. We prayed about it and prayed about it, and finally I thought, okay, the way to stop this juggernaut 
is to find out it's going to cost $3 million to buy a bed and breakfast, and unless we get a check in the mail, then we'll know that is not what God's call is. So I called Jim Hampson because he was an old friend of ours and said, do you know anybody in commercial real estate? And I told him sort of what had happened, and he said, that is really weird. Uh, he said, but that's so weird, it might be the Lord. And I was like, please don't say that. Um, so he said, let me think about this. I'm going to call you back with somebody's name and number. So he called me back and said, I want you to call Preston Hip." Well, Preston and I had known each other when we were in high school. And when I was talking to Jim, he said, Preston is one of the deepest Christians I know. And I said, really? Um, because that was not where Preston was when I knew him. Uh, but I called him and explained to him, and in his wonderful, gentle way, Preston said, you know, I think you may be off the hook because you are not going to find um, what you need in the price range that you want. Because Jane and I had come up, we decided, okay, if we're going to think about this, we need a list of what we would need for a property that would be big enough to make money and big enough to live in and all that. So we came up with 14 criteria a property would have to meet in order for it to work for us. So Preston said, I don't think that's going to happen, but I'll, I'll search the listings. The next day, my phone rings, and it's Preston. And he said, I am sitting here, and every hair on the back of my neck is standing up, and I am trembling because I just got a listing that came on my fax machine that make, meets all 14 of your criteria. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I got on a plane and flew over to Charleston, and I don't know why or how, but this house, even though it was a wreck, the Lord just spoke to my heart and said, this is for you. So I went home and told Jane, and she got on the plane with me and came back, and we decided, you know, we really think this is the Lord. And it was crazy. And we had children and, you know, all of these responsibilities. But we really felt that if God was leading us, it was going to be okay. And so then we had to tell my parents and my parents-in-law. And they're like, right, you're quitting a job with a six-figure salary and health insurance, and you have three children, and you're going to move to a business with a wrecked old house. Um, yeah, you're going to do all that. And fortunately, they didn't block our way. Uh, the Lord opened all of these different doors. And so about six months from when I had that vision in the car, we moved to Charleston. I quit my job. There's a whole other story with that where they wouldn't let me quit. They kept saying I was having a mid-year, midlife crisis since I was about to turn 40. And... Um, but I quit and we moved. And the amazing thing is that when we did that, God blessed us so amazingly with miracle after miracle after miracle. Uh, one of the problems with the bed and breakfast is you have no income stream unless people come and stay with you. And um, so that involved a miracle of getting people to come stay with us. And we, we did what we could, but it was honestly a little slow at the beginning. So we were praying and praying and People at St. Philip's were praying with us because we'd gotten involved here. And one morning, I was sitting in the drawing room, and there's this knock on the door, and there's this lady there. And she said, I'd love to look around your house. It's so charming. 
Well, people did that all the time. If you live in the historic district, it probably happens to you. And remember, this was the 80s, um, or no, the 90s at this point, the era of the bed and breakfast guidebook. And everybody was scheming to get into Fodor's best bed and breakfast guidebook series, because if you got into that, you had it made. And people would strategize for decades about that. So I'm talking to this lady, and she said, oh, by the way, I'm the editor of Fodor's best bed and breakfast in America. And I thought, right, and I'm the pope. But <laughs> so I showed her around, and she said, I'd love to send a team down here to look around and see what they think. And I was like, right. But sure enough, she did. And we somehow got rated one of the top three bed and breakfast in South Carolina. Business started going crazy. Travel and leisure, El Decor, HGTV all came and did features on our property. And we had great business success. But the beautiful thing about it was that the business success was the ancillary benefit. What we ended up with was amazing time together as a family, time to be able to really invest deeply in our relationship with our children, time to be able to invest deeply in our church to get involved in leadership, time to be able to invest deeply in ministry. And the beautiful thing about it is that I would never have thought that by God leading me to do something crazy like a bed and breakfast, that that would be a great blessing to our spiritual life and to our family life, and that it would tee things up for what God wanted to do in my life later. So just a couple of reflections about that. One reflection is that so often what we want from the Lord is a blueprint for our life that makes sense to us about how he plans to use us. We, th or at least I, y'all may not be like this, I have a very specific idea of what I think God should do. And uh, that's not the way God operates. You can't put God in a box. He's not a cosmic vending machine where you put in the right stuff and then out pops the result you asked for. But what I did learn through this is that when you try to be obedient to the things that you do know, God will bless and guide you. Throughout this time of uncertainty, we were being careful to be at church and be under good teaching. We were careful to be at Bible study, to be at small group. We were careful to be having our quiet times. And I am still eternally grateful to churches all over the world that had a ministry of keeping their doors open during the week. Because I cannot tell you how many times when I was on business trips, I would have 30 minutes where I could go and pray in a church and listen for the Lord, and it was a huge blessing to me. But my encouragement to you is that if you are in a place where you feel really frustrated and you don't see how God is working, and you don't see how God can use the circumstances where you are, maybe it's that God wants to call you to something different. And what I would encourage you to do is to keep doing the next thing, to do what you know, to take that frustration and turn it into investing deeply in fellowship, deeply in the word of God, deeply in worship, and trust the Lord to guide you. I wanna share with you just briefly a little poem that was popularized by Elizabeth Elliot some years ago that's called Do the Next Thing. And it's a little uh, smarmy, but there, there's some great truth in it. 
and it goes like this. From an old English parsonage down by the sea, there came in the twilight a message to me. Its quaint Saxon legend deeply engraven hath, it seems to me, teaching from heaven. And on through the doors the quiet words ring like a low inspiration, do the next thing. Many a questioning, many a fear, many a doubt hath its quieting here. Moment by moment let down from heaven, time, opportunity, and guidance are given. Fear not tomorrow, child of the king. Trust them with Jesus. Do the next thing. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand, who placed it before thee with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, safe neath his wing. Leave all results. Do the next thing. Looking for Jesus ever serener, working or suffering be thy demeanor. In his dear presence, the rest of his calm, the light of his countenance, be thy psalm. Strong in his faithfulness, praise and sing. Then as he beckons thee, do the next thing. My friends, this idea of doing what the Lord puts in front of you, I think is the key to being able to open your heart and your mind to perceiving what God's will is. And as that wonderful verse in Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is much more interested in accomplishing your will in our lives than we are. Lord, we pray that you would help us to radically trust you, even when it doesn't make sense, that you would lead and guide us right into the center of your perfect will. Lord, for any man that is struggling today or who is feeling nudges from the Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray you would give each one of those men the courage to lean into you and to do the next thing. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.